HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. You're listening to Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and uh, this is at Roberta's Pizza on a sweltering hot Monday in July. Um, I'm very excited today because our guests are really instrumental in this whole wonderful food scene that that we've uh, seen erupt in Brooklyn. Seriously, I mean that in a big way. Um, and they're here today, both of them. This is the husband and wife team who started the Brooklyn Kitchen six years ago. Five. Five. Five, five years ago. Harry and Taylor. Hi. Hey, Hi. thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Um, so you guys were just talking a little bit about how your, the business has, has changed your food or eating habits a little bit. And I just love the saying that you, that you just said, Taylor, about how um, a lot of the food you make is borderline well, yeah, based. Um, we have been thinking a lot about the, the food we make at home and how it's influenced our life and how our life has influenced the food that we make at home. Um, Kathy was just saying that we must have cooked very differently before we had access to as many ingredients. And I thinking about that, I think that we actually tend to cook with less ingredients now <laughs> because we owning a grocery store and, and you know, with a butcher shop involved, um, we tend to take home and cook 
items that are no longer saleable <laughs> or, you know, that somebody was else would not want to pick was up. Was that any. contrary to your original plan? It, <laughs> I just no, wanted... I think it's very, you know, it, our home kitchen is filled with items that are slightly dented and slightly broken or discontinued um, with a couple of treasures thrown in, of course, but uh, we tend to be, you know, populated and populated. Right. Our kitchen tends to be populated right. by the things that are no longer viable on the in a retail. Front. And moldy beef. No, she's yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of the time it'll be, you know, last night, for instance, um, you know, we had kind of a mishmash of stuff and it wasn't because it was going bad. But, you know, there was one sausage left of one variety. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the in the butcher case, it doesn't look good to have a single link sitting there. Yeah. And so I took that home and there were, you know, there was one piece of marinated beef heart left that hadn't sold over the weekend. And again, you know, it's unlikely that a customer is going to come in today and say, oh, I want that one sausage or I want that one link or, you know, I want beef heart. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, or I want that one tomato that, you know, didn't get purchased because it looks a little bit, you know, it has a spot on it or something, you know, different from all the other tomatoes. And so we end up taking home, you know, I also like to call them the lonely foods. We get the lonely foods, the ugly foods. (laughs) Give us your tired (laughs) tomatoes. Sounds like fun to me. Iron Chef. It is. It's really, that's the current challenge in our lives is both dealing with cooking foods that just kind of, we happen to remember to grab at 6.15 as we need to leave the store. And, Mm -hmm. um, and also cooking foods that our toddler will eat, which before you have kids, you kind of have this vision of parents, parents can be so weird. (laughs) Parents can be so weird about their kids not eating stuff. (laughs) Why don't they just feed them whatever you're eating, which is so not possible in the real world with a real toddler. Um, because they have personalities that they're developing, and those personalities sometimes and often involve what the food that they won't eat or the ways that they'll right. protest, they're like the ways that they define themselves by protesting against their parents, and it often <laughs> manifests in what they won't choose to eat that day. Yeah, and and there's no, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. Mm-hmm. At all. I mean, one day, uh, you know, rice, no problem. She'll eat as much rice as we could possibly shove in her face. Mm. The next day, same rice, same ingredients, same taste. No way, not a chance. Wow. Uh, that makes me really want to have kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, first of all, congrats to even cooking, because I know you guys are really busy. But um, how else has the, the business changed, as well as yourselves, in the, in the last five years? So a little more information about the Brooklyn Kitchen. We started um, in November of 2006. I'm like, has it, has, was it? Yes. It was November <laughs> of 2006. It seems like only yesterday and a lifetime ago. Um, and one of our first profile pieces was by by Miss Kathy Irway. I in think Block I was one Magazine. of the first person, people to walk into yeah. the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, well, I think a little bit before that, too. Um, Harry and I had met in 2002, mm-hmm. 2002. Um, and at the time, you know, we were both living the, living the free will and single life of Brooklyn 20-something. Oh, yeah. You may remember it. You may remember those days. I don't know. Um, (laughs) You know, and we kind of both lived on our own and and had our own kind of cooking ways. Like our own cooking, you know, we developed our own, you know, kind of life in the kitchen on our own. And then, you know, we met and we fell in love and we got married and we started developing our own cooking life together. You know, cooking food at home that was, as I remember it now, it was so much more epic. <laughs> Everything that we made was like an enormous production. Uh-oh. You know, Harry's first foray into charcuterie was um, a what was it? 
well, there was the there were the dried sausages. The dried sausages that were that were an, an early foray, um, actually, with uh, in in partnership with Mr. Tom Milan, who's now the head butcher at the Meat Hook, which is inside the butcher shop inside the Brooklyn Kitchen. Um, you know, we were making dried sausages, and you know, we were standing around in the kitchen and drinking a lot of bourbon, mm-hmm. and you know, putting you know ground meat into casings using a KitchenAid mixer, and then you know, we hung them for, I don't know, five or six months and let them dry out a little too, you know, they dried out too far, but I mean, you know, it definitely, it worked. I mean, we were, you know, we were messing around with that. I mean, there was a, you know, there was a a mole that Taylor made. Yes, I was thinking of the mole. Exactly. The mole, which is like. Took three and a half or four days to make. It was a three day project. It was a long, we always made chili um, for New Year's Day. Because there's, you know, when you get to a certain point in your life, you realize that New Year's Eve is for crazy people and yeah you know not for eating drinking not, well not for eating drinking and like not worth paying attention to because it's like because you're just gonna the, throw it up it's yeah. those high pressure holidays <laughs> where it's like what are you doing on this particular thursday right. that happens to be a special thursday which is you know, just so artificial um the real fun is having people over on new year's day and comparing hangover ah. and like getting the war stories from your friends totally so um harry actually started this tradition of having chili on new year's day I'm sure many other people do it, but um, Harry started doing it in. I started doing it. Uh, it was January first of two thousand three. Was the very first one, <laughs> no. I believe. No. But you were at the first chili party, right? But I hadn't. Oh yeah, I guess you're so. Right. It would have been January first yeah. of two thousand three. Do you still right? hold them? We do. Yes. Every thing. every year on New Year's Day, we invite people over for chili. Back then, when it was before we were actually even dating. Um, and I was living the aforementioned life of, you know, a single 20-something in Brooklyn, I found that the cooking of chili also was good for the hangover, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. the eating of chili. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was one of the, that was part of the impetus for starting it. And now, of course, as Taylor mentioned, it's one of those things that it's a lot more fun, I think, and it's a lot less damaging to your apartment to have your friends over <laughs> after they've done all of their New Year's <laughs> drinking rather than during. Um, but it is a tradition that we, you know, we carry on to this day. We have people over for, for chili, and it, and it has it has taken on a life of its own. As, as many things do, in that originally I made some chili. I asked people if they wanted to bring some cornbread and some other stuff. Mm. And now it's sort of become a contest, but not that we have promoted. Our friends now have taken it upon themselves that it's a chili contest and that they need to compete against one another on New Year's Day, which is fine with me. I don't really, you know. Hey, yeah, it's a homegrown chili cook-off. But, you know, when we were when we were first living together, um, Taylor made this, you know, four-day mole or something for the, for was, the chili. The mole poblano? It was, it was, et cetera. It was like... The recipe seemed so simple, but then you, when you start breaking it out, you're like, oh, right, frying all these dried chilies yeah. takes two and a half hours. Uh, Scraping them all takes two, you know, soaking them is overnight, frying uh, them and then soaking, you know, and all these steps was a lot more involved than we had originally anticipated. But luckily it was a long weekend and we had the time to get started early and it was absolutely delicious. It was really good. But then we ate it forever. So, I mean, we just made epic, epic projects um, in our early days because we had the time and we, this was, this was at the time outside of our mm. daily lives. Yeah, we were totally working happy. in, Harry was um, first a lighting designer, right? Mm-hmm. I was a lighting designer and I taught uh, lighting at Columbia mm-hmm. and, you know, spent a lot of time in the, in the academic world. 
And I was, you know, working a nine to five day job at J-O-B. So when I was a scientist, right? I was uh, construction management. So I was doing construction management and and project management for Stytown. And so, you know, at five o'clock when the whistle blew, I would leave and I would come home and I would, you know, have, you know, be able to engage my creative side of my brain by doing some cooking and eating. Um, So that was, it was the hobby. It was the outside Mm -hmm. of our real life lives. Um, But it's also a need too. It was, and we had to feed ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. and then it was another chili party, a chili party New Year's Day 2006, that we realized that the neighborhood didn't have a good place to buy good tools, good knives, good pots and pans, and canning jars, which we had spent days and months and weeks searching for the summer before. And that was, you know, the... Yeah. The light the bulb thing. went and this on. this is your neighborhood, right? Greenpoint, yeah, Williamsburg. Greenpo- we live yeah. in Greenpoint, but we lived in and around Williamsburg for the past... Um, six years at that point. Um, and so it was, yeah, that's when the light bulb went off and we realized that something could, that there was a market for it. So, you know, we kind and of toyed with this idea. With the chili, it chili New Year's the, Eve tradition. Chili, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, it's so funny how things start like that. Right. And now, of course, uh, if, for those who don't know, the Brooklyn Kitchen Labs um, is a culinary school. Um, with classes like every two every, every day, yeah, two a day or so. Um, greet workspaces, um, very friendly, communal, dig in, hands on uh, classes, and also a great butcher, the Meat Hook, which is conjoined. Um, it's quite a it's quite an experience. People come from like all over the, the country to check it out. When we first in two thousand nine, when we first opened the Meat Hook, we had a <laughs> Japanese television crew Uh-oh. do a segment for their morning program in Tokyo. Um, <laughs> it was I've been there. Live. It was <laughs> live, live broadcast. Of a pig butchering class. It was very funny. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the pig butchering classes have always been this, this unique well, since, draw. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things, you know, with us becoming interested in cooking and, and then starting the Brooklyn Kitchen because we needed somewhere to, you know, couldn't get the tools and, and things like that and recognized a sort of an, a need in the neighborhood. Um, you know, the classes, I think, came out of the same sort of idea that it was sort of, you know, we were scheduling and programming classes about subjects that we were interested in expanding our own knowledge about in mm-hmm. the beginning. Uh, the pig butchering class came about originally because we were interested in starting to do some kind of butchering classes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was friends at that time with Tom Island, and we were sitting around one night and I said, let's, you know, do you want to do a butchering class? Tom at the time was doing all the butchering for Diner and Marlowe. It was before Marlowe and Daughters opened. And he said, sure, you know, let's do a class about chicken and mm. duck and we'll do, you know, start with poultry and then maybe we could do, you know, a lamb. And then maybe, you oh, know, if people had enough interest, maybe we could build it up and do a half a pig. And I said, you know, let's start with a half a pig. And <laughs> part of that was my own curiosity, having yeah. never at that point seen, seen a, a half a pig yeah. get taken apart into its you know into all the cuts and so it was my you know that came out of my own interest in saying well if i'm interested in this i bet you there's other people totally and you know the hunch turned out to be correct it was a ballsy move though i mean people like a whole half side of a pig it's a it's a shocking it's a very visceral experience but Um, it it makes sense and i think people really appreciate being able to understand where you know how how an animal becomes a pork chop. Yeah, 
Have you ever thought of doing pig slaughtering? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. People have asked us about that. Yeah. And we've had people say, well, you know, now I've done the butchering. I really want to learn about the slaughtering. And I say, okay, well, if you really want to learn about the slaughtering, it's a you know, little I, weird. I can put you in touch with some farms if yeah, you right. really want to know about it. But sure. I, I think that, you know, you by and large, don't. people don't really want to know yeah that. that's, that's I mean, not quite a kitchen thing too right it's a it's yeah. a different sort of life experience it's an thing. agricultural sure yeah and I, and I think that people think that they want to know about it because there is a sense also I mean you know the pig butchering class is education but it mm-hmm. also is you know there is a, a an entertainment factor to it and you get to you know it's an experiential thing and I think that people have this sense that the next step in that experience that they mm-hmm. enjoyed would be to undertake slaughtering. But I don't think people quite have a real understanding of what that totally. means. I, I think, you know, people can get a good sense of it. Um, I think there's been a lot of interesting video that's come out recently. I know Liza DeGia, who does Food Curated, did a really, really good video about a small slaughterhouse mm-hmm. um, in New York State right. that really, you know, shows what the realities are. Um, of you know, and and in that case, what the realities are of a really well-run, really clean, small slaughterhouse, not you know a controlled animal feeding operation or any of that kind of thing. Totally. So thanks to these classes, a good chunk of Brooklyn has seen uh, you know the the whole side of the pig, the whole side of the pig, mm-hmm. <laughs> pun intended. Um, you know what? I was just thinking. I I would love to have. Have you guys ever had a fish? Uh, butchering class because I'm so bad at that. I know it's hard. I mean, filleting it's, is hard. Filleting yeah. is hard. It's it's somewhat. I mean, it's certainly maybe good. for the knife skills class. Well, we actually we've know. just started having um, knife skills, which has been our most popular class mm-hmm. um, since we Brendan. started having it with Brendan McDermott, mm-hmm. who's still teaching it. Um, we've just started offering once a month an advanced knife skills class. Oh, And cool. that class, uh, the next one is on August 10th, I believe. Right. And that class comes with a six-inch boning knife. Um, oh, oh. And also comes with a whole chicken and a whole fish. So that's And so key. in the course of knife. the class, you learn how to use the knife, you learn how to break down the chicken in different ways, and you learn how to fillet the fish, and then you get to take all the protein home. Do you, ha- do you have to take the first class before you can advance this? No, advance? Not, okay. not at all. It's not, you know, <laughs> there, there's, no, there's, no, there's no prerequisite. Um, okay. and, it, and, you know, and, and I think it is a great class because people, not only do you get the experience, you know, we, in that class, speaking about fish specifically, we yeah. use a flatfish. Um, so we use a flounder or, you know, something of that and nature. that's tougher, right? Well, or- it's... It's actually, the reason we do that is that on a flatfish, you basically get four fillets because of the shape of the mm. fish. And so you actually get yeah. more practice at right. filleting than if you were filleting a round fish. <laughs> or you get these H-H <laughs> figure-shaped right. things. Um, okay, so I know you guys picked out a little song to uh, jam with for a sec here. Of course, classic. Yeah. All right, let's put it on. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
we're back on Let's Eat In. I'm Kathy Airway, and I'm here with Harry Rosenblum and Taylor Erkinen from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Did I pronounce that wrong? It's 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 Erkinen, I guess. I mean, it's that's that's the <laughs> that's how my family pronounces it. I think it's it's more Finnish in Finland, like oh. Erkinen, but we don't go there, so I'm not. I worried. tried to be uh, enunciate anyway. <laughs> um, that was a good pick. That song. Uh, thanks. I'm for I'm actually really that. sad because I. I thought about it last night, and I didn't dig around to my CD collection because my cousin, Michael Arkinen, covers that song on an album that I have, but I wasn't able to bring that in, that version, which I really like. But yeah. I like the song Classic, anyway. Though. Good stuff. Um, thanks so much for sharing the insight about the whole genesis of the Brooklyn Kitchen. And where do you see it going now? Well, I mean, the, since... I mean, I think since 2006, when we started the store, our, our cooking life changed with the advent of running our own business. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were running our own business designed around and coming from cooking at home. And yet, as soon as we started, we really lost the ability to continue in that epic tradition that we had started, Aww. That where that had yeah. come from. You know, we no longer, you know, we worked in the store every day, seven right. days a week for two and a half years, you know, until we could finally take a reliable day off. Mm-hmm. Um, that reliable day off is, is you know, we're we're getting there um, it always changes and you know it's not always reliable but um it, for two and a half years we were working in the store every day often from 10 o'clock to 8 p.m so we were not able to yeah. continue cooking in the same tradition and weren't even really you know it was very it became very abbreviated and very foreshortened our cooking at home um yeah when we would go on you know the the few vacations we took those first years, I think we actually did more cooking while yeah. we were on vacation because yeah. we were away and right. we didn't have to. You know, well, at the same time, I bet you helped the neighborhood get ahead in cooking while you while you de- yeah. There's the, dirt- because, <laughs> there's the dirty secret because yeah. we would be talking to everybody and making recommendations about <laughs> their cooking, and at the same time, <laughs> shamelessly eating takeout. You know, um, not all the time, yeah. but still, you know, you have to make do and you have mm-hmm. to survive. Um, and as we, you know, we hired a couple of people, and some of them are still with us, which is great, um, and had more time to ourselves and didn't have to close the store overnight, then we started to, to I mean, our, we were no longer able to do the same kind of epic... Moles. Uh, yeah, yeah, the epic moles, but more reliable everyday cooking started to take hold in a way that it hadn't really been the case before so and then with a more structured strategy for bringing lunch to the store um in my working world i never really got into that habit of of bringing food in every day and i know that that is very much part of your background (laughs) is not eating out um but so in i feel like the the 2000 eight 2009 years were very much about starting to have a reliable rhythm you made it about right Mm -hmm. like reliable rhythm about cooking at home with a little more time um and not so oh wait why did i say that we didn't do epic projects 2008 was the year of the pig head because when we were started doing oh i lied completely i started doing we started doing the pig butchering classes and the (laughs) way that it worked the way that it worked in the original initial days was that everybody who took part in the class would go through and have they'd have a bag and it would be a a lottery system and not lottery but draft basically and and we'd divide up the half a pig into there were it was 12 people in the class so we'd divide the half a pig into 12 sections essentially people each person got to take home 
a part of it because we had nowhere to keep it. We right. weren't right. operating in a place yeah, that had, had a, a commercial fridge. refrigerator. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a walk-in and it couldn't go back to, mm-hmm. you know, we had ordered it sort of through Marlowe and Diner, but they didn't have room for it. They right. didn't want it back. And it was, you know, so we'd had to divvy it up and get it out of there. Mm-hmm. And probably nine times out of 10, nobody would take home the head. It's too epic for most people. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up taking the big head home a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, the first Sometimes time, every week. Right. The Brooklyn Kitchen head cheese. No. Yeah. It, it was, it became, it definitely, it was, there was a, a very steep learning curve. But yeah. the first head cheese that Harry made, it just tasted like pig head. Right. I mean, yeah. we basically boiled everything down and it just and didn't really add any any spices salt, and amar- yeah. aromatics we also and didn't salt. brine it the first time right so we and then the second time we brined it and the third time i think was where we hit the stride where it's like yeah. you have to cook it dump that water cook down the head add an entire magnum of cheap white wine and Ooh. i think that is the secret to like bringing that flavor up because mm. it's so like it's a pig head it's very heavy it's very dense it's very it's a very low flavor profile and so dumping an entire bottle of cheap white wine a reuniti um i find that really uh, fresh it, herbs yeah. kind of jellied in there yes. chopped mm-hmm. up looks, and, looks and, nice um, <laughs> and celery is <laughs> celery nice really. oh okay hmm. at the end so we, we you know we started mastering head cheese and crazy um and that was because we didn't you know i I felt like we couldn't uh at that time you know i we couldn't in good conscience have this event and then throw the head away yeah (laughs) it was you know it seemed like not a good idea and and we tried to come up with other things to do with it i think at the very end of that run what i realized is that um it was easier and actually um also then easier to freeze and use up later to make scrapple Mm. out of the head that's right um, scrapple then became, you know, we, we did lots of head cheese for many, many weeks, but then um, scrapple, I realized, was faster and stuff. easier. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is really good, and and it could be done in a pressure cooker, which was mm-hmm. really the, the key was that you didn't, you know, when we were doing the head cheese, you know, you have to essentially simmer the mm-hmm. entire pig head for hours. And so what we would do is put it, it in the oven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In a pot of water, the way that you yeah. know, the way that Harold McGee recommends making stock, right? And you know, put it in the oven at like two hundred and you know twenty five degrees or two hundred degrees, and go to bed. Mm-hmm. And at like four thirty in the morning, the entire house would smell like <laughs> pig head, and I would wake up and like stumble to the kitchen and turn it off and then go back <laughs> to sleep, so that it would be cool enough by the time you know the middle middle of the morning came that you could pick all the meat and start the the next part of the process. So fun. Yeah, we definitely got to a rhythm. Pagans. Yeah. So, so then in two thousand, well, in two thousand eight, I found out that I was pregnant, and Moxie was born July of two thousand nine. Um, you know, uh, contemporary with that, um, we re- the pig butchering classes and the knife skills classes and several of the other classes that we were having on a monthly basis would sell out within hours of being announced every month. So you know, I remember, there's people just literally like standing on shelving just to like yeah, get in there. To be yeah. amazing. To Twelve people yeah. standing around a room not designed or any in any way accommodatable <laughs> of these people to to watch a pig being being butchered or watch kombucha being made would all happen at the in the tiniest room um, at the same time that the store was open. And it was you know it wasn't conducive to anybody else shopping during that happening and it wasn't really conducive to that happening at all (laughs) so we started to recognize that the space wasn't allowing us to do as much as we needed to do and it was really becoming a a customer service drag when people would call up and say but i really want to take this class and i've been wanting to take it for months and i haven't been able to take it and i was like well 
12 other people called first this time, you know, <laughs> right. it sucked. So we were walking around the neighborhood looking for another space to just have classes. Yeah. And Harry, you want to feel this one? So we were on our way. Um, it was in April of 2009. Um, so Taylor was six months pregnant. And we were on our way walking to, to look at a space that was for rent, thinking that we would just move the cooking classes offsite into a garage or something. Right. And at that point, I had already had a few conversations with, um, by that time, Marlowe and Daughters was open. And mm-hmm. so Tom Mylan and Brent Young and myself had had a couple conversations about... That's the butcher shop sister of Marlowe and Sons. Exactly. And had had some conversations about that, you know, about, you know, well, what if they wanted to open their own butcher shop someday? And would we, you know, have mm-hmm. room for that if we found a big enough space and, you know, all this stuff. And we were going to look at a space and before we got to the space that was for rent we walked past our current location and the door was open and the building was empty mm-hmm. and we walked inside and I said to the guy standing there is this for rent and he said yeah you know I'm putting up a sign in about 20 minutes Oh, so nice. we were the first people to see the space when it came on the market for rent and took one look at what is now lab one which is our large lab space that has 19 foot ceilings and you know big open kitchen and and skylights and my first phone call was to our contractor and my second phone call was to tom who i knew had the day off that day and i said i'm going to come pick you up you got to check this place out (laughs) cool so we took a look at it and luckily you know for us the owners were willing to sort of wait and work with us while we were able to put together financing um in order to do it well, congratulations! You definitely, you definitely did it right. What you got? Some upcoming classes that are particularly cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's in 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 part of our process of, of epic. Mm-hmm. The, we keep going back to that the epic cooking. Yeah. Um, we would have dinner parties. Um, one of the classes that we have coming up is taught by our friend Millicent Soros, um, which is the the timing of a dinner party. Ooh. Um, so there's yeah. a class coming up on the 25th of July that that is designed to help conceive of designing the time laying the time out for how to prepare what when if you're you're having people over for a dinner party oh i'm supposed to do that (laughs) i mean it was just you know figuring out how to not load the oven all at 4 p.m i know you know the day of especially on thanksgiving people get freaked out by that turkey and then pies ah right okay um pie then turkey cook the pie the day before (laughs) this this will teach you um we're doing um, I think one of the reasons why we started the, st- started the store was because of the it, our own personal interest in canning and preserving because yeah. we had grapes yep. in our backyard and our inability to find any pectin. Um, and then <laughs> since we started and started selling these things, we've everybody everybody has been um, starting to relearn, relearn these Jam. traditions that have disappeared so long ago. Um, we're doing a series of classes with Sherry v- Brooks Vinton, who's the author of Put 'Em Up. Um, she's teaching canning and preserving classes. Got a show with her in the archives. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's not just pickling. Um, that's going to be. It's pretty much every other Wednesday. So the next class is on July twenty seventh, and there's another couple throughout July, uh, throughout August. It's a August. perfect time for yeah. canning and jamming yeah. when everything is super awesome and ripe. Yep. Because you'll and taste cheaper. that in the winter. Mm. Yeah, and cheaper. Um, we in August appropriately have a pile of tomato classes. Yeah. One thing that we did last year was we offered um, our customers the ability to buy 
um, a bushel box of yeah. tomatoes yeah canning tomatoes yeah. in bulk so we'll be doing that again it's a 20 or a 30 pound box i don't remember um but those will be available again in august and we're doing a series of classes specifically regarding tomatoes and of course the nice. the general overview canning class will address tomatoes a little bit it's water bath canning the same principles do apply definitely want to save that fresh tomato flavor yes, for the winter i tend to save them and then treasure them and then not open them up until it's like may or june yeah <laughs> yeah next well, i didn't wait that in, long you know? i actually i bought this last year mm-hmm. and i can't recommend it enough it was great yeah yeah Put i them had up. a lot of jars of tomatoes thanks to you guys so that that's so cool i mean you guys are really like getting like segues into local farms you know the direct connection there great deals for the customers uh thanks to that yeah definitely um, cool what else what oh, you know happening? what? My favorite question. Yeah. That's, that could be, what else? What's the perfect date meal? Ooh. Sexy, romantic. Um, I'll let you figure out what know, that means. I know, we're looking means. at each other. I don't know. <laughs> it's fun to have a couple on I think, show to answer. <laughs> I think a good date meal that breaks down barriers for a first or early date is ramen. Because you can't, like, you can't be all cool when you're slurping soup. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and it's so delicious, and it's well, if it's good, it's delicious. Ramen, ramen's a good one. I was, I was gonna say in the same vein. I mean, sticking with Japanese, I was gonna say something like, you know, izakaya, um, ah, because it, because it's communal. I mean, because you fun. have to eat together. I mean, and you have no, to get all these small plates exactly because yeah. you're not, you know, you you aren't just ordering separate. Or you, it's a good test, I guess. Yeah, for, that's you know, true. Be like, I'm gonna get this, and you know, let's order this. That's if true. You sh- if she shares. Mm-hmm. You know, if he gets food on his face, you know, these are the tests that, that should be evaluated <laughs> for a future relationship. Watch out, guys. Don't get food on your face. It's a kaya blades. Uh, <laughs> that's a good answer. Very, very creative. <laughs> you guys are still cracking up. Um, did that happen or something? No. Okay. Anyway, I guess we're about out of time, but thank you guys so much for being on the show. Check out thebrooklynkitchen.com, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Moby, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Hi, this is Moby, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. A new film is coming out. It's called American Meat. It's a documentary based on the life of Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. But it also includes footage from conventional livestock agriculture and processing plants. So you do get a bit more of a um, less biased, shall we say, uh, view of how livestock agriculture works. It makes many of the same arguments, of course, as you would have seen in Food, Inc., so there's nothing especially groundbreaking here, but in this case, the producers claim to be free of a quote-unquote agenda. If you didn't get enough information from Food, Inc., look for this one. Again, it's called American Meat. The website gives no release date, but you can learn a little bit more by Googling just American Meat. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Finger on the Pole and City Winery are proud to present the Summer Barbecue Blowout Festival, August 6th, from noon to 4 p.m. 
The barbecue is happening at City Winery, located at 155 Varick Street in New York City. Restaurants featured at this event are Empire Mayonnaise, Van Dag, Momofuku Mopar, Imperial No. 9, Mile End, Mexicu, Kraft, Dizzy's Club, Coca-Cola, The Meatball Shop, and Dos Toros. Providing the soundtrack for the day are Midnight Magic, Pewter Magic, New Villager, Punches, Ducky, DJ Autobot, and the Snacky Tune DJ. VIP and general admission tickets are available at citywinery.com. Finger in the pole for City Winery would like to thank our sponsors. Heritage Foods USA, New York Magazine, Rekha Vodka, Sonar, Smile, Guilt City, Sub-Zero and Wolf. Please come out and join us for a day of fun, food, and dancing. For more information, go to www.fotpnyc.com. Party. It's a party in the street all day long. 